Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valsler, and with Helen Scales. Now, first up, let's take a look at some of the week's biggest breakthroughs from around the world. Now, Helen, when are you at your happiest? I'm at my happiest. Mm, good question. Um, possibly when I'm in bed still, actually. You know, in the mornings when I can stay in bed and don't have to get up and work. That'd be quite nice. I see. Well, research published this week shows that we're actually at our most happy when we're concentrating on the job at hand rather than allowing our minds to wander. But oddly, people actually seem to spend most of their time, almost half of their waking hours, thinking about something other than what they're currently doing. Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert from Harvard University developed a free application for smartphone users that contacted its users at random intervals to ascertain their happiness, what they were doing, and importantly, what they were thinking about. They asked if they were thinking about what they were currently doing, or if they weren't thinking about that, if they were thinking about something pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant. Now, it's thought that our ability to contemplate events in the past, as well as possible future events, is actually a vital part of the human condition. It helps us to learn, to reason and to make plans. But this study, which was published in the journal Science this week, set out to see how it affects our happiness. Now, reports of mind-wandering, or stimulus-independent thought, were actually strikingly common in these results. In fact, for 21 of the 22 different categories of activity, people reported that their minds were wandering no less than 30% of the time. The only activity where people didn't report this much mind-wandering? Well, that was the activity called making love. Now, contrary to what you might expect, the activity in hand didn't actually affect how pleasant the daydreaming was. But how does this relate to happiness? Well, by performing a multi-level regression analysis, which is a statistical analysis that can show causal relationships in sets of data, the researchers were able to show that people were less happy when allowing their minds to wander. In fact, even thinking pleasant thoughts was no more likely to make you happy than staying in the moment. Now, you might think that what you're doing is most likely to affect how happy you are, but actually the analysis showed that the activity you were doing itself only accounted for about 4.6% of the variation in mood, while mind-wandering accounted for over 10%. They could also account for the fact that negative mood is known to lead to a wandering mind. Time lag analysis generally showed that mind-wandering was the cause rather than the consequence of unhappiness. So it seems that there may be some truth in the philosophical and religious teachings that tell us happiness is attained by concentrating on the moment and living in the moment. But still, a wandering mind is a useful one. The authors argue that the ability to think about what is not happening is a cognitive achievement that comes at an emotional cost. Helen. Oh, good stuff. Well, I think I will try not to let my mind wander quite as much as it does, <laughs> but uh, um, since it does seem to do some good. Well, my story comes up now with uh, news that, as many parents, um, aunties and uncles probably know full well, kids get much more tired out simply by walking around. 
than us adults do. And now scientists have taken a step closer to understanding why this might be. It's not just that they run up and down more or that uh, that we actually get more efficient at walking as we grow taller, but in fact it's all about having longer legs. Publishing in the Journal of Experimental Biology, Peter Weyand from the Southern Methodist University in the US led a team of researchers who investigated the metabolism and gait of a group of walking volunteers and they ranged from 5 to 32 years old and they were between 3 and over 6 feet tall. Well, it's already known that across all sorts of different animals, um, those that are smaller and have smaller bodies use more energy per unit of mass than larger animals. But this doesn't actually give us a full answer as to why little people use up more energy walking around. And it's actually got, it's more than just a factor of just their different metabolic rates. Something else is going on. Well, Wayne's team monitored the energy used up by each volunteer as they were asked to walk on a treadmill at different speeds, ranging from half to um, just under two metres a second. And what they discovered was that smaller people use the same amount of energy per stride as taller folk. But obviously, with littler legs, they have to take more strides to cover the same ground, using up more energy in the process. So essentially, if you scaled up a three-foot five-year-old to be the same size as a six-foot adult, sounds quite terrifying to me, but if you were to do that... Um, they would actually walk at exactly the same in exactly the same way, revealing that grown-ups don't have a different, more economic way of walking. They just benefit from having longer legs, essentially. So if the five-year-old was on stilts, that actually would be more efficient? They would use... Technically, they would use less energy, I suppose, although they have obviously got to be able to walk on the stilts and figure <laughs> out using their muscles in a different way because the, the stilt isn't their own body, essentially. But um, it is all about the gait and the, and the stature. So essentially, it is, it is all about how many strides you take to cover a bit of ground. So yeah, if it was a five-year-old who could use stilts, I guess that would work. But um, the kind of neat thing that comes out of this findings, these findings, not just, you know, it's not just a case of, of scientific interest, it's actually a good application of it too, um, which is that... They've got an equation now which really accurately calculates the energetic cost of walking and that could be fed into applications um, for things like pedometers and treadmills by inputting not just your weight as many current uh, machines do at the moment. Um, if you put your height in as well, we could now get a much more accurate representation of how many um, calories you're likely to burn over a certain distance. And certainly from my perspective, this is fantastic because it means next time I'm at the gym on the treadmill running next to an elegant, tall athlete, I've got a genuine scientific excuse for finding it much harder work um, because just like toddlers us vertically challenged folk use much more energy just getting around well sadly i am six foot tall and so i don't have that excuse and i'm afraid just have to blame it on not being very fit previously we've believed that the earth's atmosphere turned oxygen rich about 800 million years ago and this ushered in the era that made complex life like us possible but now new research from scotland shows that we might have got it wrong. And in fact, oxygen levels increased much, much earlier. Speaking to Chris Smith, University of Aberdeen geologist Professor John Parnell. We're examining a key stage in the evolution of life on Earth. Uh, the evidence relates to a particular group of microbes which uh, have been very successful and very widespread. Uh, today they colonize everywhere from freezing glaciers down to hot smokers in the deep ocean. 
They rely on reducing sulfate. So these are what are known as sulfate-reducing bacteria or sulfate-reducing microbes. But they made an important advance by getting energy in a more efficient way, which involved uh, making use of oxygen in the environment. So it's as a marker for increasing oxygen in the atmosphere that they are really important in this context. So we can use them as a proxy measure for when oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere in general increased and then that in turn enabled more complicated things like us to come along. That's right. It's important because as oxygen increased in the atmosphere and started to penetrate into the subsurface, this opened the way to complex life, including animals, and for that life to burrow down beneath the surface. So we're looking not just at an evolution of life, but an evolution of habitat as well, and an evolution of behavior, because of course, uh, uh, as life went beneath the surface, it could could then escape uh, predators, etc. And can you put some timing on this for us? When exactly, looking back in geological history, are we talking about? Well, it it had been thought that this evolution to make use of oxygen occurred about 800 million years ago. We now have evidence from our rocks in Scotland that this occurred at least 400 million years before that. So we're substantially putting back the boundary to at least 1.2 billion years old. The oldest evidence that we have comes from near Loch Inver uh, in Sutherlandshire on the west coast of Scotland. That's at 1.2 billion. And then we have continuing evidence from about 1 billion years old in the the Gareloch district, which is also on the west coast of Scotland. And when you say you've got this evidence, what are you looking for and what are you actually finding? The evidence doesn't come from conventional fossils. It comes from what we call chemical fossils. That is, distinctive chemical signatures that are left behind by the microbes. And in this case, it relates to a detailed analysis of the sulfur that the microbes were using to get energy. That sulfur now occurs in the mineral iron pyrite, and that's what we have sampled and analyzed. And, and we've done that in, uh, in a couple of different ways. We, we have done some chemical extractions from the pyrite. We've also used a laser technique uh, on the pyrite. And in both cases, we extract the sulfur out and then analyze its isotopic composition. And, and it, it's the details of that isotopic data that tells us that the, the microbes must have been using oxygen uh, and therefore that uh, enough oxygen was available to them. So why did you undertake this study? Because everyone was pretty sure that about 800 million years ago, that's when things suddenly began to change. So why did you then go looking and say, well, is that really the date? Well, I mean, most of the rocks from this age are from the ocean, Um, But we were aware that we had rocks back at 1.2 billion, which had been laid down in a large lake. So this is effectively a terrestrial environment, and that means that any microbes that might have been inhabiting that environment were much more in tune with what was going on in the atmosphere. Uh, And so if there was going to be anywhere where we might find this earlier signature, it was going to be in terrestrial rocks like the ones we had. So that was a good reason to go looking there. And it happens that uh, these rocks up in northwest Scotland are particularly well preserved for their age. Uh, So there was a good reason to go searching there. And I guess now what you're going to have to do is to independently confirm or corroborate this, perhaps by looking at other rocks from other bits of the world of an equivalent age and see if you can see the same signature written there. 
Well, in a way, we actually have already corroborated this because we first of all looked at uh, the rocks at 1.2 billion. These were the ones near Loch Inver. And then we looked at a younger set of rocks, I mean, quite a different set of rocks uh, of 1 billion years old. These are the ones near Gerloch. And they showed us the continuation of the same signature. So, so we've shown that this is not just an isolated event. We actually have a continuing story. And what are the implications of it? Well, I mean, the implications are that we, we, are, we are pushing back the time at which there was enough oxygen in the atmosphere to support the evolution of complex life. Now, it may well be that there was some other event which eventually kicked off the evolution of animals. But what we've shown is that there was enough oxygen around so that the atmosphere was not a barrier to that evolution. Which is a good thing, at least where we're concerned. That was Aberdeen University's John Parnell talking with Chris Smith. He's published that work this week in the journal Nature. Now, we've been living alongside cats for thousands of years, but it's taken until now to fully understand how they perform one of the most basic of tasks, and that's drinking. All cats, from the mightiest wild tiger to the laziest fat lap cat, drink with a very subtle action that takes advantage of a balance between gravity and the force of inertia. That's the tendency for something to keep moving in the same direction unless acted upon by an external force. Back in the 1940s, an MIT engineer called Doc Edgerton filmed a domestic cat lapping at milk. We've known since then that they form a distinctive shape with their tongues, curling the tip of the tongue backwards so that the top, or the dorsal side of the tongue, is the first to hit the water. Now, writing in the journal Science, another MIT researcher, Roman Stocker, and his colleagues have used high-speed video footage of domestic cats, including Stocker's own pet, that's Cutter Cutter, which is a delightful name for a cat, along with a range of big cats from local zoos. They've used data from these observations to make them able to build a robotic version of a cat's tongue and really get to grips with the mechanisms involved. Now, when the tongue comes into contact with the liquid, some of the liquid will adhere to the surface of the tongue. As the tongue is retracted, it pulls a column of liquid along behind it. And here's where the elegant physics comes into play. The column is pulled up by inertia and simultaneously pulled back down by gravity. At the perfect time, the cat closes its jaw, taking in the tip of the column whilst keeping its chin dry. Now, on average, this is only about 0.1 millilitres of liquid. If it closes its jaw any later, the column would break and it wouldn't get any water, but any earlier and the cat would get a faceful. For larger volumes of water, the balance, this ratio, will be a bit different. And what we see is that big cats, who obviously lap more water at any one time, lap at a different frequency. Interestingly, things like surface tension and viscosity of the fluid itself seem to play little or no role. And because the tip of the tongue has none of the distinctive hair-like rough projections that make cats' tongues feel so distinctive, they also play no part in the physics of lapping. It also seems that cats drink in a very, very different way to dogs, who merely use their tongues to scoop up liquid like a ladle. Now, as well as helping us to understand how cats maintain their refined image, even when lapping rainwater out of a puddle, understanding these mechanisms will inform biomechanical models and will help us to design better soft robots. The Naked Scientist's Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.